Blog Talk Radio. This program has been made possible by Weatherby Asset Management. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guests. Hi, this is Emily Bouchard of Wealth Legacy Group, and this is Wealth Psychology on Sylvia Global Media. And we are here today with our guest, Michael Palumbo, and we are going to be talking about how to leave a lasting legacy. We're really excited because this show is all about how do we make the most of our wealth, our money, our values, and transferring those to the next generation? How do we deal with the emotional impact of money and wealth in our lives? And how do we make it so that it can be as much of a wonderful tool and useful resource for us as possible, as opposed to uh, possibly doing damage or, or harming the people we love? And Michael is a, a real expert in this field. He just got back from London where he spoke at a conference uh, for multifamily offices. Can't wait to hear about that. And Michael is also a father of seven children and an avid scuba diver. And we have a lot to connect with and talk about in terms of how do you live a really fabulous life and leave a lasting legacy that's in a positive way. So let's launch in. And Michael, I'd like you to start by telling us a little bit about your story and why you're so passionate about your work and what it is you do exactly for family. Hi, Emily. Well, thank you for having me. Um, my story is kind of different than most. Um, I did not grow up in a wealthy family. We were a very, you know, middle class family. Um, in terms of, you know, when you're talking about the families of wealth, who we talk to an awful lot of times, they grew up in those families. Um, I didn't. Um, I, uh, you know, dad did was very successful. Um, and today is one of those, you know, we are one of those families, but that's not what it was like growing up. Um, Dad said something to me when I was a teenager that impacted the next probably 10, 15 years of my life. Um, what he said was, you know, Michael, my father did better than his father. I did better than my father. And so, of course, you're going to do better than me. Set and up an expectation was, there, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, it, it was... It was a lot of weight on my shoulders um, because I wasn't mature enough for whatever reason to to sort through what that meant. And what that meant for me was that if I didn't go out and do better than my dad, then I would be the first generation of failures. Oh. And so that's how I interpreted what was said. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people do. I think that, yeah, if, if you don't do better, then you failed somehow. Yeah, it's a yeah. really good point. So I I spent the next bunch of years trying to figure out what to do with that. Uh, in my head, what I had put together, the story in, that I was telling myself was, you know, if I did the same thing as my father, uh, I would definitely, you know, the way I could do better than him, I would do the same as him. So... You know, I didn't know what to do. We weren't a family that had, you know, business owners, um, successful business owners in our legacy. So it was, you know, kind of a put your thoughts and ideas together on your own. And so I listened. Uh, I sold Amway. I sold vacuum cleaners door to door. Um, I, I laughed when I was on stage in London 
I was wearing a pair of Allen Edmonds shoes that, you know, Allen Edmonds shoes cost about $345. That's what they cost here in the States. I had a car when I was running around doing things, um, trying to make, you know, the world work in, you know, trying to find success for myself and chasing money. Um, the car cost $300. So what I used to get around 25 years ago cost less than, or cost about the same as the shoes that I was wearing. Oh, it's such a good point, and I like that you're just coming forward and saying that, like, oh, my gosh, I have to succeed, and we just, you know, people strive, and they try all these different things, and I love that door-to-door -door Amway. I mean, so many people can relate to what you're saying, and I think that a lot of uh, young people in this day and age don't necessarily um, have those even aspects to, to, to grab for or look at as possibilities. So that's, tell us more about what your journey was like. Sure. Um, basically, if, if somebody came to me and said, I have an opportunity and I can prove to you how, you know, we made money or you could make money doing it, I tried it. Um, I think most people, you know, that watch any type of television have seen Storage Wars or a commercial for Storage Wars. Yep. Um, 20 years ago, I was buying lockers and then selling the contents to other people. Um, I was going to U.S. custom sales and turning around and buying the goods off the dock at the you know U.S. Customs Service that were confiscated and bringing them back home and selling them at home. Um, and, and I tell that because I like it. I like people to know that I, you know, I had to look up to see zero. I, I didn't start, you know, with any, you know, a silver spoon in my mouth. Um, and yet at the same time, I was watching my father become very successful. Um, Dad is a you know first generation millionaire. Um, his father before him was not. Um, now, I want to slow down just a second because a lot of people who tune into our show may um, find themselves impacted by that uh, phrase of being born with a silver spoon in your mouth. And there's a lot, because this is a wealth psychology show, It's my one of my roles is to kind of take care of the listeners as we speak about different things. And Great. So the fact that you would say that, it's like there's this, um, there's this presupposition, there's this thinking in the culture that, well, if you're born with a silver spoon in your mouth and you don't have to work and you don't have to hoof it, and, and there are a whole other set of challenges and, um, and being in that role and the responsibilities that you're not prepared for that can have a huge impact. That is a great book called Choking on the Silver Spoon, where you know if you're not told and shown how to make use of that in a way that's really valuable, it can you know have a really adverse impact on you. So, um, but I hear what you're saying, which is wow. I watched my father become successful, self-made, come, you know, really work hard at what he was doing, and and I knew I had to do it on my own. Is what I'm hearing. It's like you weren't given like, here's your your cushion or your resources, and uh, now you know have fun. It was like, no, I really need to prove this and make it on my own. And you weren't presuming right. that that money was going to be yours. So thanks for letting for, me clarify it a little bit. Nope, that's great. No, I and I appreciate that because um, I have worked with you know, kids uh, that were, you know, second generation or third generation wealth. And that impact, is a, it's just a different impact. It's a different story in their head. And it's a story that they need to work through just like I needed to work through mine. So I appreciate you clarifying that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what happened is eventually I, I started to realize I wasn't happy and that I was always chasing 
you know, it was never good enough. If I made $50,000 a year, then I wanted to make 100. If I made $100,000 a year, I wanted to make 200. If I made 200, I wanted to make more. And it wasn't about anything. Um, I ended up working for a large company and and didn't like hitting the glass ceiling. Um, so I, you know, went out on my own. And eventually I, I decided to talk to my father to say, all right, I'll do the same thing that you're doing. To me, that felt like I was kind of giving up. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, uh, I found out that I kind of liked what I was, you know, what we were doing with the families. So. And what what was it that your father was doing? What, what my was father it? was a financial advisor. Oh. So he did, you know, he's been a financial advisor now for going on 40 years and loves it, doesn't want to retire, loves working with the families. Um, so so you, got a, you got a chance to come back and say, okay, you're doing something, you're doing something that works well for you. Can I learn with you? Can I, can I discover how to do this and see if I like it like that? Exactly. And the other piece to it was that, you know, hitting the glass ceiling in the corporate world, uh, most of my other businesses never panned out the way that I've, you know, had expected them to. Um, I made a living, but, you know, nothing that took it to the next level. Went to the corporate world, started to work with uh, Xerox. And what I found was that, you know, that you had that corp, that glass ceiling over the top of you. Dad didn't have that. Dad, it was how hard you worked. You know, the more families that you served, the better you were paid. And that appealed to me. Um, what I also found is that when I was serving the families, it felt really good. Uh, it wasn't just the excitement of a sale. It was the enthusiasm of service and really helping the families out. So it was a nice combination of your values and your skill set. Right. You still have that entrepreneurial way of being and, and really and, and still make a difference too. And it is interesting this sense of uh well if my dad's doing this and he's successful, I have to go prove myself in a different way versus um well let me go do and dad do what dad does. And it's like it's an often a push pull in families in terms of like not wanting to do the same thing or needing to prove as opposed to what's really mine to do? What is right. it that, where are my skills, talents, and abilities going to best serve and serve me? And it sounds like you were able to find that. Close. Um, I think it was a step. And, and I'll tell you what happened. There was, there was two major events that came together. Uh, the first is I watched some of the plans that my father and that I had put together um, fall apart. And technically, they were perfect. They had their wills. Their beneficiary designations were correct. The, you know, all of the legal documents were spot on. There was nothing wrong with them. But when the second of the generation that put the plan together were, you know, passed, the planning didn't come together exactly the way that we had talked about. And some kind, sometimes the families fought. And we weren't talking about, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. We're just most of the clients in the, you know, upstate New York area that we were serving, you know, are that, you know, the million to $10 million net worth. Yeah. And, you know, so so a lot of people would say, geez, that's not an awful lot of money. And yet it still had exactly the same effect if it was $100 million, just magnified more if there's more money, I think. Um yeah. 
Yeah, we talk about that as it's um, money's kind of like wax on wood, and it brings out uh, whatever the beauty is, and also whatever the knots might be, or the the imp, you know the imperfections. And you know, it's interesting when I like, I'm on a plane and somebody asks me what I do, and I, I talk about how I support people in having the conversations around their wealth and um, staying together and connected when wealth transfers. They look at me, and inevitably I get two responses. One, oh, my God, I wish we could have had you 15 years ago. Or the other one, which is, like, so heart-wrenching, is they start to tell me about how they're not talking to a sibling anymore, and it could be as simple as about a fight about a vase. It doesn't even – it's never about the money or the object. It's about whatever those unresolved feelings were and those, those conversations that they never knew how to have. And so you got to see the fallout of that. Like you would do these great structures, great governance, great designs, and then the families wouldn't stay together. They'd stop, start fighting, it would, like that sort of you, thing. Absolutely. And you're right. There was one family, I can tell you, it was the sale of a $250,000 house that kept a brother and sister they haven't spoken in 20 years. Now, I, I found that story out just in the work that I was doing, but uh, one of the siblings was a friend of mine and and a mentor, and he still doesn't talk to his sister today. And I just, it boggled my mind. Um, and, and so that was that was step one of this revolution or the evolution of Michael. Uh, the second was in 2004, 2005, I went through a divorce. Um, and having four kids of my own, uh, some of which, you know, my, my daughter was a teenager at the time. The oldest was 16 years old. And I watched the effects of the aftermath of my decision uh, to divorce my wife and the effects that it had on my kids. And even to this day, um, my oldest daughter, I maybe speak with her two or three times a year. And oh, uh, yeah. so, the, and the younger ones were there, but it's still that, you know, it's still rough at times. And what happened for me, as I said, you know, the way I handled this, the way that I went through with the divorce, I don't think it was the most mature decision, the most, you know, uh, the it wasn't just it wasn't a mature way of handling it yeah, and when emotions lead we we end up making some saying things that we wish we hadn't have said we we end up making rash decisions that we we don't necessarily know what the fallout's going to be but in that moment it seems like the best right choice we can do yeah right. i totally understand so knowing that my father was successfully financially and that there was going to be an inheritance coming down, realizing that, you know, even in the midst of going through the divorce, financially I was becoming successful and, you know, would be leaving something for, for my kids. I, I said that it, the best thing that I could possibly do was to start figuring out what successful families were doing at, in order to pass wealth from generation to generation and, you know, what families, you know, were doing wrong, and as I looked at it, I was doing everything wrong. Oh. <laughs> and I said, and I said I, it's time that this family, and it wasn't just me and the family, it was, you know, lots of members of our family, and I said, we're going to end up being one of those families that doesn't talk, that things go wrong, and I said, you know, we're, we love each other too much for that to happen, so I just wanted to start doing the research into what to do differently. Wow, 
Wow. Well, this is a great place to take a little station identification. And we are going to jump in on our next segment about, oh, my gosh, what is it that families do wrong? What can they do to make it right? Because you've done the research. You have your book. And we'll talk more about that in our next segment. I'm Emily Bouchard. This is Wealth Psychology at Sylvia Global Media. And our guest is Michael Palumbos. So in this segment of Wealth Psychology with Michael Palumbos, we are going to be talking about what is it that families that you learn through your research do wrong that has them, boom, you know, not talk to each other for 20 years over the sale of a house or, um, you know, just not get along when it comes to the money and the transitioning of wealth. You're, you're a wealth advisor. You saw this happen again and again, saw it in your own family's life. Um, love for you to talk a little bit about your research, your book, and what you discovered so that people who tune in can figure out how to start doing it right. Sure. Well, one of the things that really jumped out at me is looking at how people measure wealth. What is, what is wealth to you? And so I ask that to people all the time. And when I was in London, I said, you know, do you measure, excuse me, do you measure wealth in euros? Do you measure wealth in pounds? Do you measure wealth in dollars? And you were in London for what was the conference again? It was the, the Family Office Leadership Summit. Uh, so it was a, a gathering of a bunch of different family offices looking to exchange information. They had you know, economists from the Bank of England and uh, people from some very you know, wealthy families that were just looking for some ideas, mostly on the investment area. So for me to come in there and talk about, you know, these kinds of uh, things, I think, was a little jolt to the to the system for a lot of people. And but it was well received. It's so relevant and so needed. I love that they had you come and speak on it because all that other stuff isn't going to do much good if you don't have the the knowledge about how to transfer it successfully. Yeah, and that was the uh, the big the big thing that I got out of it afterwards. Because I thought I was going out on a limb after listening to all the other speakers. I was closer to the end. Um, and everybody was, you know, spot on with their, here's my figures, my numbers, and here's what we're doing, and then here comes Mike. <laughs> and uh, um, the audience was a little, you know, um, but we had fun, and I had fun with them, and I think they enjoyed it. But when one of the things that, you know, when we talk about is how do you measure wealth, it's, is are you measuring wealth in physical things? Are you measuring wealth in your financial assets? Or are you measuring wealth based on um, other things? And, and I'll give you an example. Happiness. How many people measure their wealth based on happiness? And I use that one because uh, there's a, a doctor out there, Dr. Robert Holden. Um, he actually runs a happiness center in London. Uh, he's been on Oprah and, you know, the Today Show when you name it. He's written numbers of books and done tons of research on happiness. And he runs a course on happiness. And in his course, he has asked hundreds of different people this one question, and that if you could bestow one wish upon your children or your grandchildren, what would you wish for them? And the answer resoundingly is, I want them to be happy. Yeah. And exactly. even matter, if it's given a choice between wealth or happiness, 100% of respondents have said, I want them to be happy. If it's a choice between um, academic success uh, or fame, 
95% said happiness. Yep. The choice between happiness and success in general, 90% still said happiness. And if that's what we want for the next generation, if that's what we want for our grandchildren, our children, our great-grandchildren, what's the best way to ensure that they'll listen to you one and two that they'll be happy how can we teach them to be happy and so what i you know talk about is we spend thousands of dollars hundreds of thousands of, of dollars preparing our wealth for our heirs oh and to mitigate taxes and, and absolutely uh, yeah it's, it's all about how and, and no problem there if you want to keep it as much as you want that's fine but if that's only the thing you're focusing on is that really about happiness and what happens when somebody in your family finds out that they're being treated as a tax deduction as opposed to somebody that you care about and you want to be happy? It gets confusing. The messages get really mixed up. That's absolutely a great point. And so, we, you know, I just talked about preparing the heirs for the wealth. And the best way that we can prepare anybody is if we want them to be happy is we need to teach them how to be happy. So uh, why do you do that? Well, I think the biggest thing is that we work within our passion. Um, I think we, if we're if we're doing something that's somebody else's dream, then you're never going to be happy. Now that doesn't mean you know, I'll give you a, you know working with my father. I love what I'm doing. I found that working on this piece of the puzzle, I still like working on the financial planning. I still like putting a plan together and seeing a plan come to you know fruition. But I also like to bring in the fact that there's a whole other side of planning. There's the legacy part and living our legacy and creating happiness. Um, so passion is probably the biggest thing. Um, and the other piece that I would say is everybody has an Uncle Ernie in their family. Uncle Ernie is the guy that every time you say up, he says down. If you say black, he says white. Um, Some people, it's and, a parent, it's a little bit closer, or yeah, it, yeah, I like how you're making it a little bit distant, like an uncle. But boy, I know a lot of people where they they start coming forward with what's in their heart and what they want to do, and they know that the moment that they do, their parent is going to completely naysay it and tell them all the reasons why it's not a good idea and uh, really kind of squash it. And so people tend to not reveal it or don't feel like they have permission to be able to go there. Mm-hmm. And then the the opposite is, you know, you've got your mother's sister who was the crazy aunt who took you out on the swing set and turned the swing set into a lyric ship with you. Um, she just, every idea that you possibly had, she just said, you're the greatest. Oh, that's so clever. How did you think of that? And you just feel so good about yourself when you're with her. Yeah. And, I, and so I said, you know, the, this is the question is, you need to ask yourself, are you happy? If you took away all your money, if you took away all your assets, if you took away all of the things, could you still be happy? And if you're not happy right now, right this second, this year, this month, if you're not happy with your life, then before you spend another penny on a hedge fund, before you invest into another company, before you do any more planning in regards to how do I get my stuff to my heirs, Spend every waking moment, every penny that you possibly can investing in yourself and your happiness. Well, I think and, that that's a really good point because I, I think a lot of people um, think that they are doing that by accumulating more stuff. 
And one of our favorite quotes that we like to use is, you can never have enough of what you don't really want. And so, you know, if you want to get the next bigger yacht or the next car or the next, it's just, it's, it's a wonderful thing to be able to have that capacity. And there's no reason why you shouldn't if you have the money to do it. It's just a question of don't think that that object or that possession is going to be fulfilling and sustaining in terms of the happiness you feel. It's a very, it's a vicious cycle in terms of what you said, that it's never enough and there's always something more. And if you compare to others, you're doomed. So yeah. it's about really getting at the core of happiness. I love that you're bringing this forward. I think the country of Bhutan has, instead of a gross national uh, product in terms of what they're buying and selling, they look at it in terms of the gross national happiness. What's their happiness? What country index? is that? Uh, Bhutan. That's phenomenal. I have not heard that. I love that. And then we also love the work of Tal Ben-Shahar. He's out of Israel, and I think he does a course um, through the University of Pennsylvania. And it might be okay. he used to teach at Harvard on happiness as well. And so this is a topic that you know people care a lot about. We're in the country where we are about the pursuit of happiness. And I think what happens is we get really lost in the trappings of what the culture says makes us happy. And I'm wondering if we could speak a little bit about you, you talked about coming from your passion. I'm just thinking about I, I met with a group of women, young women in their 30s who are inheritors, uh, who got together, and for the first time, they had a safe and uh, trusted place where they could talk about what the concerns were that were in their hearts that kept them from being happy. And they had no place else in their lives to go because the presumption in the world out there is, well, if you have all this money, then you must be happy, and you don't have any right to be unhappy. And that's a trap that can really you know, suck people down and make, and make for a really miserable life. And so I think that's one of our passions is what can we do to support people in leading truly rich lives from that inner sense of well-being and happiness? So I'm delighted you're bringing this forward, and let's hear more about that. What have you discovered? Uh-oh. Michael, well, let me just throw in, uh, I think John Lennon said it best, and, there, and I think most people know the quote, but he, what he said was, when I was five years old, my mother used to tell me that happiness was the key to life. And then I went to school, and they gave me an assignment, and they said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he said, happy. And they said, well, we don't think you understand the assignment. And he just looked at them and said, I don't think you understand life. <laughs> and I think, I think that's a fun way to look at it and really can help people as they're going through and you know, making decisions about their life. Uh, I have a 17-year-old son, Connor, and Connor, uh, he has struggled as a teen, um, you know, but he's starting to get his act together, so to speak, and starting to mature and make some good decisions, and we're going through that decision-making process of what do I want to be when I grow up, and you know, he says, Dad, I think, you know, I want to be like you and Papa and I want to get into the business world and, and run a business and I think that I'll take business courses in order to, to do that. And I said, Connor, you know, that's great, but I, 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 would, I would really push you to look at your life and all the things that you've done through school and pick the one thing where you sat there and said, oh, I just love doing this. And he said, well, the thing that I love the most, Dad, I don't think I can make any money doing it. I don't think I could support a family. I said, well, what do you love? He said, history. 
I just, every time I look at my grades, Dad, every time I've taken a history class, I've never had to really work at it because it was just a joy for me. It was just fun and I really enjoyed it. I said, Connor, then what you need to do is figure out to, you, you need to take history as your major so that you really understand it. You'll figure out how to make a living doing it. It's just we don't need to worry about how to make the living yet. You just need to start co collecting the knowledge. And that was a turning point for him because uh, he thought for sure that I was going to say, oh, yep, you know, you're never going to make any money doing that. Um, you know, and I said, it doesn't matter. I said, and, and realistically, whether you make $50,000 a year or 500000 or $5 million a year, does it really make that big of a difference if you're unhappy? Yeah, you know, we spend so to... many hours in our lives working, and it's a very important part of our lives. And one of the things that we work with with people who are inheritors is tapping into their vocation. Like, what is it that they would do without getting paid because they love it? And where they can also get paid, even if they have the inheritance, because it's, they are providing value and service, and uh, they, they deserve to get paid the salary if they want to go that route. But it's really about coming from that vocari, that sense of vocation. Why am I here? What's wanting to speak through me? And I think that the other piece that I would recommend for Connor is, yes, go for your passion, go for history, and take those business classes. Find out right. where your privacity is there. Look at it. I mean, I really wish somebody encouraged me to do that. I, I have a strong entrepreneurial spirit, and I ended up doing a course work in um, child development, and loved it. It was my passion. But looking back, it's like, wow, it would have been great to have taken more business classes as well. And I just found out Wharton, the business school at Penn, is doing uh, some MOOC, uh, you know, the massive online courses on, on the basics of uh, finance and man management and marketing. And so he could actually do those online to see if he likes them, if he has a proclivity to those. So that's where I love engaging that spirit of yes and. Yes. Right. There's ways how do I to how to merge these that things? Money. Yeah. Understand the language of money. Understand the language of business. And then go for your passion and see how to combine the two. Yeah, exactly. So that's, that's the big thing when it comes to um, talking about passion for, for me. It, it was interesting. When I finished the talk in London, uh, I had a gentleman that was probably 10 years older than I was. He's taking a one-year sabbatical from what he was doing and said to me, you know, when you talk about your passion, how long do you have to give it before you go and do something else? And my answer was, this is on the sidewalk outside of the hotel after, after the talk. So yeah, I think that, you know, off my cuff, I said, the minimum is two years. So you have to give it your all for at least two years. But if it's something that, you know, you're truly passionate about and you're not going to be happy, it's the air that you breathe kind of passion, then you need to do it the rest of your life. It's so and true. I think That's so true. I, it's funny. I was moving, oh, I don't know, a number of years ago, I was moving back um, to Texas and uh, my, I sent my dad my resume. I said, you know, do you know of anybody that I might be able to put this in front of? And he looked at me and he said, I would never hire you. You've only worked at every place here for two years or less. And I was like, that's so interesting because I'd never worked for you. This is so curious. He ran a department in a hospital. And I realized I was living that. I, I committed fully to whatever I was doing for um, 
I would stay in it for two years max if um, it don't, didn't resonate for me. Sometimes it was less if it was like, wow, this is not a fit. And then when I really got clear on what I'm here to do and my work I'm doing, I've been doing it. I launched my company in 2003, and I've been doing nothing else since. It's just been coaching families on communication and how to have the most unified, successful relationships that they can. And once I got that, boom, I haven't, I'll never stop. You know, it's like how else can I support dramatically improve those relationships? Like that's what right. I'm about. So that's really great. I feel so affirmed. <laughs> it's nice because I, when I look at what I'm doing now, you know, the journey's been over the last five years for me when I really started to make those switches and, you know, the experiences that I had with my, my family and the families that I served. Um, and there was several times, even since I've known you, um, where, you know, I sat there and doubted it and I said, I, I can't, I'm not doing this any longer. Um, oh, wow. I need to just focus on the thing that makes money because I do have a, a family and seven kids and I've made some obligation, you know, I've, I have obligation to college for the kids sure. and, you know, the, the base, you know, the, the good stuff. And it's not always easy when you, you know, you try to do run your passion when you find it in the middle of your life. Yeah, and it is so interesting about the both and. And, you know, when the money archetypes that we work with people on, we look at how is it, it's oftentimes this disconnect. Like if I do what I'm passionate about and what I care about, you know, by definition, I shouldn't be paid for it. And it's really important to bring those two together where you can have, you know, your creator artist and your magician archetypes come forward to have this incredible work that you love. And your warrior can come in and say, yeah, and I can generate a great income with it. And right. for those that are just tuning in, Michael Palumbos and I, Emily Bouchard from Wealth Legacy Group, met a number of years ago at the Purposeful Planning's Rendezvous in Denver, where we are really committed to supporting people in uh, having and leading rich lives and uh, being successful in all aspects of their estate planning and their financial planning. In our next segment on wealth psychology, we're going to be speaking about Michael's approach to ethical estate planning. And I think he has a four-part approach we might be looking at. So stay tuned. So welcome to Wealth Psychology. My name is Emily Bouchard from Wealth Legacy Group. And our guest today is Michael Palumbos. And we are talking about leaving a lasting positive legacy. And right now in this segment, we're going to be talking about ethical estate planning. And uh, hopefully Michael will tell us a little bit about his four-part uh, process that he's discovered that really works. Great. Thanks, Emily. Uh, for me, I, I think the best thing I can tell you is just to do it. Um, and people say, you know, what is ethical succession planning? What is ethical? Um, what is an ethical will? And for me, I think there's several definitions out there. Different people look at it differently. Um, for me, it's just here's what I believe. And here's the pieces that I think can help you. And so when I was in, you know, in London talking to the families there, I said the best way that I could put this together was just to share, to share my own story and my own pieces. And uh, we, we talked about my story earlier, uh, and I think that that's important for anybody. If you're creating an ethical will, if you're sharing it with your children or your grandchildren or hopefully your great-great-great-grandchildren are reading it someday. 
uh, knowing the story and knowing the context of how you developed your values and your system I think is really important. So I would take start with my story and start with where I came from so that they understand why you know it's so important to move forward. One of the, the second that, piece, uh, go I'll, ahead. When people tell their stories about you know where I came from, how I got to the place where I am, I, a really valuable thing to also add in, what were the lessons I learned along the way? You know, when I was doing Amway, I learned this. Boy, when I was, you know, hoofing it and selling things door to door, this is what I learned. Oh my gosh, when I did the storage lockers, let me tell you this hilarious story and what I learned as a result of it. You know, so that there's, um, it's, it, how do I put it? The more we can add that to it, the more our legacy comes forward in terms of, hey, this is how, how life looked to me and how I came to understand what, where my values come from and what mattered most to me. And it's so like, meaningful for people. I like yeah. that a lot. I think um, I, I skipped the piece of the stories in there and some of the things, I mean, that have happened through my life and I went directly to the values. Um, so I, I talk about my story of my life, but there are some stories inside of there that I can add that just give it so much more flavor and texture. And, you know, uh, I, the time that a Doberman Pinscher came running around the corner um, and attacked me as I'm going door to door. Perfect. Um, that will make you know, anybody who's reading it down the line will totally be able to like be in those shoes that you were in, which were not three hundred dollars shoes at that time. They may have had <laughs> holes in the bottom. I don't know. And Absolutely. One of the things I want to point out here is a lot of people think, "All right, I finished my ethical will. I wrote down what mattered to me, and I'm done." And one of the things that we really encourage people is to revisit it every year, maybe on your birthday, maybe at a Thanksgiving, and look at wow. Who's in my life now that might be reading this? And what do I want to add to this? And how can I make it even richer? And, and oh, I forgot about this other story. It's a, it's a living document, even as you're looking at it in terms of what's going to be passed on when you die. Absolutely. For, for me, when I went through and did this in preparation for the talk in London, I, I spent an awful lot of time of you know, looking at what's important to me. And we talked about happiness before. And one of the things that I realized is you really can't make anybody happy. They have to want to be happy. And it, it reminded me of a story that I heard. My, I think I heard it from my father, actually, and which a young woman is working on her doctoral thesis in psychology. And she has two boys, Billy and Bobby. And Billy is the you know eternal optimist. You can't turn him off. He's always excited, always bouncing every place. And Bobby's the you know the five-year-old twin that's the absolute opposite of that. Everything goes wrong. The world's against me, and life is tough. And so this woman takes them and says, you know, I want to work on this nature and nurture piece. And I really believe that if I change their circumstances, that we can change their attitudes. And so she takes Billy and puts him in a room full of horse manure, and she takes Bobby and puts him in a room full of the greatest toys on the planet leaves him in there for half an hour and then goes back and checks on him. She looks at Bobby first and opens up the door and Bobby's in there throwing a temper tantrum, crying his eyes out. And for the life of her, she can't understand what's going on. And she says, Bobby, what's the matter? And he said, well, I wanted shoots and ladders, not, you know, not, not sorry. I wanted a red bike, not a blue one. 
and she just kind of scratched her head and shut the door and let him be. Goes over and checks on Billy, who she's afraid is going to be ten times worse than Bobby at this point, and there's horsemen who are being flung every place, and Bob, uh, Billy is laughing his face off and just having the grandest time, and she's looks in and says, Billy, what is going on for you? He said, oh, are you kidding me? With all this horse poop, there's got to be a pony here someplace. <laughs> and, yeah. and I tell that because that was one of the things that drove my life, and it was mindset. And so I tell people all the time, and I, you know, what I wanted to share with my kids was, is your mind set? Did you come in with all of the skills and things that you have in your life? Is what you were born with, what's innate for you, is that all you've got? And are you going to be worried about, you know, keeping what I have and making sure and comparing myself against everybody else? Or do you have the mindset that I can acquire more? And there's a professor at Stanford. Her name is um, uh, Dr. Carol um, Dweck. And she wrote the book on mindset. She's been studying mindset for 20 years, and she's found out that there's two different types of mindsets. So you have a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. And that really helped me um, understand why I ended up where I, where I did, because I've always felt that there's nothing that I couldn't learn. And what she found is that you can actually, you can't make somebody happy unless they want to, but you know, and, but somebody that that wants to can go from being unhappy to being happy just by taking courses, by figuring it out, by understanding what drives their happiness. Well, the same thing happens when it comes to mindset. It, you can learn how we have self-defeating stories, and we all tell ourselves self-defeating stories at one time or another. I'm not good enough for this. I'm not talented enough for that, whatever it is. But learning to talk back to yourself and to put yourself in its own place and kind of parent yourself. You would never talk to your children that way. You want to uplift them and bring them to the next level. So why wouldn't we do that for ourselves? And when we have a self-limiting story that we're telling ourselves, then change our mindset and say, no, I just need to do this. I just need to get another book. I just need to take another course. There's nothing I can't do. And over time, you can train your subconscious to do something different, to grow um, and change mindset. Yeah, um, it's, it's an interesting thing. I want to add something here because my co-host on the show, Jamie Traeger Muni, is a, a PhD psychologist, and she's recovering from breast cancer, and she's in Jordan right now on a trip with her family. She lives in Israel, and we are both really strong proponents of the whole positive psychology movement. We really bring that to our coaching practices, and. Uh, when I was at University of Pennsylvania, I was studying with Dr. Martin Seligman, who's considered the father of positive psychology by many. And when I was studying with him back in the mid-80s, he was speaking about learned helplessness as the way that people became depressed. And he really focused a lot of time and attention on depression and learned helplessness. And guess what? He started getting really depressed. <laughs> so he was like, you know, this is it. You know, what else could be here? So then he started to shift to, can you learn optimism? Can you learn ways of shifting that mindset from the learned helplessness to optimism and get that positive feeling back? And so he did a ton of research on it. 
you know, the mindset information is absolutely informative of this, and he birthed the whole positive psychology movement in terms of how to incrementally support people in shifting those sales. And one thing I want to say in terms of the wealth psychology perspective is if somebody's tuning into this and you are not happy and you have a fixed mindset and you have a lot of reasons for why things are the way they are and you are wanting to change that, I want to be clear that it takes a lot of little steps to climb a mountain. And don't think that it's impossible. Don't think you can't do it. And I think what you're saying, Michael, is the more people can come at this from a place of, oh, much like I want to run a marathon, I need to get a great coach or a great uh, team or I need to be part of something, like you said, study, so I can learn how to condition my body to be able to run a marathon and go the distance. It's not too dissimilar from shifting a mindset and to say, hey, I want to take on a new mindset. I want to take on a different approach to life than I've ever done before. And it's really it's great to do it in conjunction with other people, and it's great to do it in really tried and true ways. And do you go into that in your book at all in terms of how people can shift their mindsets? Or what, what is your book focused on? Um, the book is uh, Your Family Legacy, uh, 32 Ways to Preserve Your Family's Wealth for Generations. Um, and, and I would say that there are pieces of that, um, but it's but it's not everything. Um, Here it is. Oh, you've got a copy I of love it. it because you know, that's actually, oh, it's great because you can you can put it in your carry-on on a plane and you can just. I love this book. It's really easy to read. You made it so accessible, and I I really want to make sure people saw that this is a really valuable resource that is available to them. Exactly. When I I wrote that in 2012, and it was the it was before I started understanding what I wanted to pass in terms of my legacy and my ethical will. So my ethical will and these pieces of mindset, it's actually going, the next book I'm going to be writing yes. about all of these pieces. Excellent. Um, oh, I'm so glad. So these are, this is more like the structure and things you need to be aware of and everything. And I want to take a little outtake. I don't know what you use for your ethical will. Um, and I want to, I know your book's going to be awesome, but, um, Doc, uh, Susan Turnbull wrote uh, this book, The Wealth of Your Life, and this gives you step-by-step -step, um, uh, strategies. It's a workbook um, where you can create your beginnings of your ethical will, and uh, it's all about how to transfer your values as well as your valuables, right? That's what you're talking about. How do you transfer your values? Is that Perfect. That's exactly it, and she and she does a great job at pulling those pieces out. Yeah, she's great, and it's. I want to make sure people know it's not legally binding. It's not like your will that you draw up with a lawyer, but it's really meaningful because one of the things that um, in the estate planning for the blended family that Paul and I created, we make sure people know that you know if you have a a vacuum, if you have a decision you've made and you don't give the background behind it and the reasons behind it and there's this empty space, whoever is impacted by those decisions is automatically going to fill that empty space with the worst possible scenario. Talk about a mindset. And so the more you can give them the background about what it is you did, why you did it that way, the better. Yeah. So I want to make sure we get Agreed. to all four of your points. We did two of them, right? So recap. Uh, let's um, sure. Let's yep. do a little break, and we're going to make sure that all four of your points get covered and that um, 
we make sure that people really leave this with some great tools that they can use. So next segment, we're going to make sure we cover the four points to making sure you uh, transfer your values with your valuables. So welcome to All Psychology at Sylvia Global Media. I'm your co-host, Emily Bouchard from Wealth Legacy Group. My co-host, Jamie Traeger-Muni, is in Jordan right now on vacation with her family, recovering from breast cancer. And we are here with our guest, Michael Columbus, and we are talking about his approach to ethical estate planning and how to leave a lasting positive legacy. So, Michael, let's continue with our conversation. Could you recap the first two points you've made, and then let's go into the second two. Make sure we cover those. Sure. Um, I, I would I would say that there, you know, this is how I built my ethical will and my ethical succession plan. Um, it may not be the same for everybody. So, I have four points that were important to me. Um, somebody else may have five or six points, but. Uh, for me, what I found was, you know, digging into passion, digging into happiness, making sure that we were living our life um, fully for us, making sure that we had a mindset. Um, you know, for me, it was it was my mindset that got me through all of the times that I had what I would call learning experiences. Some people call them failures, um, and it was that mindset that said I could learn just about anything. Um, as long as I choose to have that growth mindset and add to it. Uh, what I've passed to my kids were two other points. And the, the other two points is one is wealth before now, uh, uh, I'm sorry, wisdom before wealth. Yeah. And the wisdom before wealth is just real simple. If you were worth $100 million and it was passed to you from your great-grandfather, and the market for whatever business the the you know the world got the rug got pulled out from underneath you and now all of a sudden there's a hundred thousand dollars left. It just the worst possible scenario happened and the money's gone. If your great grandfather had passed on the knowledge of how he built or how he and you know your great grandmother built that wealth, you could redo it. If they, without it though, you have no idea you're starting from scratch. And you know, I, I think you talked about Jamie being in Israel, um, or Jordan rather, and uh, you know, King Solomon, it makes me think of the King Solomon story where, and I'm, King Solomon says, or God says to King Solomon, um, ask me for anything and I'll grant it to you. And King Solomon thinks about it for a second and says, you know, hey God, you know, you've already um, taken care of my father, you know, King David. You've you've really you taken care of the promise that you had to him. Um, I, I really don't, you know, there's not much that I need, but there's all these people here to lead. And so, what I would ask from you is, you know, if you could bestow some wisdom and knowledge upon me, that would be really good, so that I could serve these people even better. God says to King Solomon, well, you know what? Because you didn't ask me to spite your enemies, because you didn't ask me for a long life, and you didn't ask me for wealth and riches, and you asked me for wisdom and knowledge to help my people, then I'm going to bestow upon you both great wisdom and knowledge and wealth, and you will be one of the wealthiest people of all times. And regardless of you know where you stand theologically um, or spiritually, I think the story is very powerful 
is that wealth uh, really comes from the knowledge and the wisdom that we have, you know, put together to be able to live our life. And so for me, you know, I, I think it's so important that the generations that came before us take the time to write down these ethical wills, to talk about their stories, to put the pieces together, because what they're really doing is they're passing knowledge on for generations. Yes, yeah, and long after you've lived. I mean, I think that that's one thing is we we have a tremendous fear of growing old and dying, and we have this fear of, of doing our estate plans for a lot of different reasons. And what people miss is the extraordinary value that can be transferred with this. And if they take it on and really make it like, wow, this, this is an opportunity to share so much of what I care about, not just with the people that are alive right now, but with people that I'm connected to genetically that I'm never going to meet. And right. what an extraordinary thing I can do for myself and for them. Yeah. The, the last piece that I passed to my kids, and the, what, this was phenomenal for me to go through this exercise to say what are my values, what are the things that, you know, I think can, the knowledge that I can pass to them to help them. Um, I learned, you know, I, I've lived this, and it's always, you know, action beats ideas. Um, we can have, you know, I, we all know somebody that said, oh, you know that thing, thingamajig? I thought about that four years ago. Um, but they never did anything about it. So you can have all the greatest ideas on the planet, but unless you take action on them, it doesn't mean anything. And I heard it, it's, it's very fitting for the, the families that we serve. Um, James Malinchek, he was on ABC's Secret Millionaire, and uh, he said his formula was um, uh, mindset, skill set, and get off your assets. And and I just thought that that was so funny, and you know, it's not the way I would say it, but it still gets you a little chuckle out of it. Excuse me, and, the, and yeah, go taking ahead. The act, taking the actions that are informed, and it's interesting when I go back to that that concept of the little Billy with the pile of manure. I think one of the things that um, inheritors and people that um, have this cushion behind them that aren't given a skill set and then are expected to um, be smart about mm. what they do with it. Um, the what we would call more of a fool archetype can come forward and can be in this like, well, this this guy said this is a great idea. We should go for it. And, you know, doing your vetting, doing your background, paying attention to what, um, you know, really, do you see any hoof prints in here? Let's take a look around. Are you hearing any sounds from a horse? Like, how do you make sure that there really is one before you take a ton of time and energy and talent towards something that may not actually be real? And right. there's such a fear of being taken advantage of that people tend, tend to not want to take any risks or not take any actions, or they take action without doing the due diligence. And so, again, we, we support people in fostering a great relationships with trusted advisors and bringing forward their warrior archetype to, to question, to be curious, to see how their advisor responds when they ask a question. You know, is it, do they get their back up or do they explain it in a way that makes logical sense or do they explain it in such a complex, complicated way that nobody can understand it? Because if you can't understand it, it's probably not a good thing to focus on, right? So Agreed. that's what we really want to focus on is how to have the sense of, um, uh, Ability to take risk, ability to take action, but have it grounded in that skill set and that knowledge. You put those together and you have a winning combination for sure. I couldn't say it better. 
And, and that's, you know, so now I take those four pieces and what I tell people, this is not a motivational session. These are my beliefs. These are my values. This was my ethical will and I will be adding stories to it and putting, you know, all of the pieces together with it. But the most important thing that somebody else can do is utilize what I've just talked about and say, what's important to me? And that's what I think it comes from, you know, this interview and the, this time that we've spent together. Is it wasn't so much to t tell you exactly what to do next and where to go, um, but to say, all right, if Michael can do this, then I know I can do it. <laughs> and and so I would say, you know, the, the best thing you can do is to start today, write it down, and some of you might want to videotape it or audio, you know, record it. Um, if that's easier for you, then start there and do whatever it takes just to, to begin. And then to go back and do what Emily was talking about earlier where she said, you know, maybe on your birthday every year or maybe at New Year's, you go through and just start adding to it. But most importantly, I think that it becomes very important that you start sharing those things with the people you love today. I think that giving them, if you're, you know, uh, if you are Christian and believe in Christmas, great. If you're, you know, Jewish and you want to, you know, do it during Hanukkah. Um, if there's another, you know, do it during somebody's birthday is a great time. Do it during Thanksgiving. Find a time that works for you to bestow this written gift, this knowledge, this information. And then I would take it and I would add another document over the top of that. And that's the document that is the letter to the person who you're giving all this information to that tells them how you feel about them. What do you love about them? What makes them so special to you that you wanted to take the time to bestow this information and share it with them? Um, and you can do that today. And I think, you know, um, we've done it with our children when they've gone on retreats and we call it a Palenka letter. And it's that letter um, that just tells them all the great things that we feel about them and the opportunities and what we feel that their life is going to be. Not to put pressure on them like I did for myself, but just to build them up. Um, and I think that when you combine your story with the specific stories, like you talked about, to give people a really good picture of where you're at with your values, and you just start writing it down and then put a letter to the person that uh, is going to receive that. And if you were to add to it every year, that's okay. If you saw something else, you can add to it every year. But now, rather than waiting until you pass, you can have conversations and you can actually, if somebody says, you know, hey, Grandpa, you really figured out and struggled with happiness. I'm struggling with that right now. Can you help me with that? Because I so respect what you're doing. You can't do that from the grave. Yeah. And you, that letter isn't going to teach them all of the pieces. It's just going to give them some of the pieces. And so this just might open up, I think of it more as a, an ethical dialogue um, that is point. begun by doing this. Yeah, and the thing I would add in terms of when you, when you write a letter, to somebody you love, acknowledging them and letting them know what you see, the more uh, you can give concrete examples and what you see, mm -hmm. the more that they really allow it to land. So if you write a letter and you say, I love you and I'm so proud of you, sometimes if their negative mindset is louder than that, they'll put in, yeah, but, 
or yeah, but you don't. But if you say, you know, when you uh, finished that county track meet and, you know, you gave it your all, I was really proud of you and how, you know, you just held your head high even when you didn't make first place. Or, you know, when you, um, when you were hoofing it and you were doing Amway and then you were going door to door and you just never gave up and you were so creative with all these different endeavors, I was so impressed by your go-getter attitude and it made such an impression on me that you were willing to do whatever it takes to be successful. You know, that kind of um, taking a, what you witnessed and then saying it causes somebody to feel like, wow, they noticed, I matter, what I did made a difference. It, it tends to really support that getting landing for somebody so they can receive it. I love that. That just it helps you to put that that specificity on it that somebody can really then know that you really paid attention. Yeah. And I think that's a great point. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you so much for being here. We definitely want you to come back. I want to hear more about what you're creating in terms of a whole collaborative way of doing a family office and how you see you know, professionals working even more effectively with uh, their clients to give them these happy lives that you're, you're pointing to. And uh, we're definitely committed to that as well. So it's a delight to get to talk to you about this. So, um, Michael, so Thank you for being here on Wealth Psychology at Sylvia Global Media. I'm Emily Bouchard, co-host, along with Dr. Jamie Traeger-Muni. And we are here doing what we can to support people in living and leading truly rich lives. Thanks, Michael. Thank you very much. Have a great day, everybody. Weatherby Asset Management is dedicated to providing exceptional wealth management services by forming partnerships built on trust, understanding, and thoughtful advice. For more than 20 years, they've been offering objective perspective, personalized planning, and sophisticated investment management to individual investors and families, as well as pension plans, foundations, and endowments. Contact them at www.weatherby.com. Weatherby Asset Management, located in San Francisco and New York City.